Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Three years ago, we started an experiment. <clears throat> derp, 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 derp. All right. Ready? Mm-hmm. My former colleague Alex Keefe and I wondered if we could make a show that would take all its cues from you, our audience, and answer your questions instead of ours. From Vermont Public Radio. Oh, that's you. That's me. Sorry. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State, VPR's newest podcast. And our first episode is going to start with a little bit of time traveling. Mm, there's going to be the music. 1945. I remember when we got that. The very first question came from Aaron Creeley of St. Albans. Where did the Vermont accent come from, and where is it going? I'm not sure what a Vermont accent is. I think everybody else talks funny. And we debuted with a catalog of Vermont accents. Get a flashlight and a pair of mittens, she said. Get a flashlight and a pair of mittens, pair of mittens, she said. My husband always makes fun of me for how I say mittens. And since then... How are we going to address the... What is the history of... What is the deal with... Why do so many Vermonters... I have always wondered what it's named after. It's a complicated big picture to try and wrap my head around, and that's kind of why I put Brave Little State on the the mission, (laughs) to help me answer this question. Our experiment has proven successful. You've kept asking fantastic questions about Vermont, and we've crisscrossed the state many times over to find the answers. Let's do it. I'm from Vermont Public Radio. Can I ride with you for a second? Are you Kim? I'm Kim. Joe? Yes. Hi. Hi, I'm Henry. I'm Emily. My name is Peter Hirschfeld. I'm a reporter with Vermont Public Radio. Whoa. Holy cow. You've asked about abandoned gold mines, the brain drain, coidox, immigration, racism, history, politics, economic development, aging sewer systems, and aging hippies. We didn't think of it as a commune. Later we said, oh yeah, we live on a commune. So this month on the podcast, happy third birthday to us. We celebrate with a trip down memory lane to some favorite moments from our archive. We've also made an interactive map of all our episodes so far, so you can see where we've been. I'm Angela Evansy. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund and from all of you who listen and shape our reporting. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. If you're a regular listener, you know that we usually kick things off with a scene somewhere in Vermont that sets up our winning question. We call this the cold open. And my favorite cold open of all time is this one. I'm Angela Evansy, and I'm here with my colleague, Pete Hirschfeld. Hey, Pete. Hi, Angela. And you went somewhere interesting recently? 
Yeah, I went to the Joseph Smith Birthplace Memorial in South Royalton. Joseph Smith, as in the founder of the Mormon religion. He was born right here in Vermont. And the moment you step out of your car, something hits you. It's barely loud enough to register at first, but then it's all you can hear, these angelic voices. You realize there's a network of speakers hidden in the trees, and these beautiful voices are just wafting through the air as you walk around. Right by the actual spot where Joseph Smith was born, there's a giant granite obelisk. People come here by the thousands every year to pray or meditate or just check out the scene. You Jillian? I'm for. <laughs> Hi. How you doing? Good. I came here with this Me month's too. question asker. Her name is Jillian Connor, and we decided to look around for someone to talk to. Come Thank in, you. come in. How are you, sir? Good, how are you? Good, good, good. Uh, my name is Peter Hirschfeld. I'm a reporter with Vermont Public Radio. This is Jillian, Jillian Connor? Yes. Um, nice to meet you. I'm Elder Hobbs. It's great to meet you, Elder. So, an elder is an order in the Mormon priesthood, and Elder Hobbs is incredibly hospitable. He walks us through this little museum and tells us about the life of Joseph Smith. There's a little proselytizing, obviously. Let me ask you this. Have you ever seen a Book of Mormon? Uh, you know... Have you read one? Uh, I, I can say I have not Would you like a copy? I love a copy. Yeah, like sure. We can't help but ask about the music, and it turns out it is not from Elder Hobbs' playlist. This is music that just to set the mood, so to speak. Some of it's Tabernacle Choir, Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Other soundtracks, it's all controlled from Salt Lake. We don't have anything to do with it. They just turned it on at about 8.30 in the morning, plays till about 11 o'clock at night. So, as you can gather, they're really trying to curate an experience here at the memorial. And this place had a profound impact on a guy named David Hall. It wasn't that far of a drive for us from Schenectady uh, growing up. David Hall lives in Utah now, but he grew up in upstate New York and came here as a kid with his Mormon family. And he kind of imprinted on the place. They had some campgrounds, so we would camp there. And then I've, I've just followed Vermont carefully, you know, through my life. And David Hall, he's the reason Pete and Jillian went to the Joseph Smith Memorial. Hall is a wealthy businessman, and a few years ago, he came to town with some big plans for the land around the memorial. Hall wanted to build a kind of eco-utopia where people would live in energy-efficient structures and grow all their own food on community farms. He was going to call it New Vistas. A few years ago, Hall began buying up parcels in these four small towns, Tunbridge, Royalton, Sharon, and Stratford. And the thing that really got people's attention was that Hall wanted 20,000 people to live there. 20,000 people on 5,000 acres in these four towns. And that brings us to this month's question from Jillian, who happens to live in Tunbridge. What is the deal with the New Vistas Foundation and its plan for central Vermont? And that's what this episode was going to be about. How is a developer from Utah going to remake central Vermont into an ecologically sustainable utopia? That's what we thought it was going to be about. And then, just when we finished writing the script, David Hall dropped a little bit of a bombshell on us. I'm tired of the drama. (laughs) And move on. Hall has decided to sell all the land he's bought up. The local opposition over the past two years has been a little fiercer than he anticipated. You know, those who are opposing my dream uh, did a really good job. 
so I tip my hat to him. So that's it. David Hall is done with Vermont. But the story of New Vistas isn't over yet. Okay, that's the cold open. Back to the present. Pete and I did that reporting last summer. And I've never gotten more emails from people, just out of the blue, saying how fascinating an episode was. And the thing is, the story of New Vistas still isn't over. That developer, David Hall, is now trying to sell all the land he'd bought up in these four towns. And the people who work to oppose him are now charting a new future for their region. Anyway, New Vistas was a one-of-a-kind question. And we've gotten many of those over the years. We've also gotten a lot of repeats, like this one. So I asked why there were so many young people leaving the state. Why are so many young people leaving the state? Why are so many young people leaving Vermont? Youth flight is a perennial concern in this state, and a personal one for my colleague Liam Elder Connors, as we heard in the episode. I like to joke that I've lived in the same square mile my whole life. But if I'm being honest, it's more like two square miles. I grew up in Colchester, graduated from the town high school, and then went to college right down the road from my parents' house at St. Michael's. And now I work for VPR, which happens to be in the same neighborhood. I'm a young person, and I most definitely did not leave. But I've been hearing the narrative that young people are leaving Vermont for years, even at my high school graduation. So when I started reporting this story, I began by asking some friends why they left. Hi. Hi, this is Liam. How are you? This is Alexandra Libstack, a friend of mine from high school. Right now, she's living in Massachusetts, going to grad school. It's been a couple of years, I think. Like, at least five years, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for real. We exchanged some awkward pleasantries. Did we have classes together, too? I know we had some classes. Well... We might, did we? We realized our strongest connection must have been speech team. I think Mrs. Derber would be very proud of you because <laughs> I was thinking about speech team and how you always used to do the radio competitions. <laughs> it's like, what? Alexandra, unlike me, hasn't lived in Vermont since high school. Why did you leave ultimately? Why, why did you decide you wanted to get out of the state? I felt like I had to. I felt like I. I needed to see something different. Like I needed to kind of break out of the small town vibe and just have my moment to explore life outside of Vermont. When Liam crunched the numbers for this story last year, he found that there wasn't actually a grand exodus underway. Yes, some young people were leaving, but some were moving here too. So why all the worry? The theme of migration, of leaving Vermont, is the dominant historiographic theme in Vermont history. Jill Mudgett's a Vermont historian, and in the past she's been a VPR commentator. She's going to take us way back to Vermont's first decades as a state. Mudgett says about 30 years after Vermont was settled, people were leaving. They were going west, where it was flatter, and the land was easier to farm. You start to see Vermonters leaving and writing letters back to relatives still in Vermont, kind of coaxing their brothers and their cousins to join them. How are they coaxing people to leave Vermont? Well, you you get actually pretty hilarious letters. Hilarious in an 1800s kind of way, like in this letter from a Vermonter who moved to Wisconsin. And he said, 
I feel almost provoked with myself when I look around here and see land spread out before me and nothing to do but put in the plow, and you will have a crop of corn without hoeing. And then think how we've been hanging on to a little strip of land in Vermont, not wide enough to swing a cat around without dashing her brains out against the hills. Not that anyone would want to do that, but whatever. Mudgett says pretty soon people were having conversations that might sound familiar. You start to see Vermont culture makers, Vermont political leaders worrying about the fact that their kids are leaving, that their kids may leave. They were so worried schools developed a Vermont-centric curriculum. And the motivation was to instill in Vermont children an appreciation of the natural landscape. As people started to leave Vermont, others hunkered down and defended their reasons for staying even writing poems about it. And one stanza reads, "'Tis here in Vermont, the land of green mountains, I choose to remain contented to dwell. Among the green mountains, the lofty green mountains, the cloud-capped green mountains, contented to dwell." There are other lines in the poem about having Johnny Cake and other corn-based foods and butter and cheese and how that's all not only good but perfectly adequate I'm just like thinking of the contemporary day version of like Johnny Cakes and like now it's just like, yeah, come get some like Chunky Monkey and a Heady Topper or something. Like. <laughs> right, right. And we all know that we all feel arrogantly proud that our beer is better and our cheese is better. So along with our long-standing local vore tradition, the worry that Vermont isn't a place for young people stretches back into our history. We've worried about out-migration since right after we got settled. It's almost like we didn't even have time to get comfortable. Migration and demographics are dominant themes in your collective curiosity. Why is Vermont so overwhelmingly white? And how does that affect all of us? This question came to us from Eva Gumprecht of Adamant. To answer Eva's question, we looked at the history of Vermont's whiteness, both racial and cultural, and we talked to people of color about what it's like to live here. Rebecca Sananis did some really superb interviews for this episode. Here's one of them. The supermarket has become my least favorite place to go. It seems to be the place where people like to touch me. So yes, I am in the grocery store, standing in line. There was a gentleman behind me who had clearly put in a hard day's work. His jeans were dirty, his hands were dirty, he was just dirty from head to toe. And he grabbed a handful of my dreadlocks and asked me how it was I got my hair to do that while running his very filthy hands through my very clean hair. (laughs) I'm Angela Grenier. I love to backpack and hike and basically anything outdoors. I moved to New England about 13 years ago, and I, I moved for the love of my husband as well as a job. I feel like when I moved from Wisconsin to New England, It was an awakening of sorts for me. I wasn't aware of my color as much as I I am now. The first day that my daughter and I were in New England, we wanted to see our new town. As we're walking around, 
we were definitely aware that the neighborhood wasn't happy to see us. And, and within a half an hour, I was spit on and um, also experienced some neighbors who crossed the street to get away from us. The two of us talk about our experiences regularly. My daughter is 26 years old now. She was 14 when we moved. And again, it's been 14 years of her life not really having too many um, racially charged experiences. So when it started to happen to her, it it rocked her world. It, it really rocked her to her core. And it's something that we talk about almost daily. She left New England the day after her high school graduation, vowed never to come back, and has not. There are more personal stories and some really fascinating history in this episode. And I will brag a bit and say that it won a National Edward R. Murrow Award in 2017. It was actually Brave Little State's second National Murrow. We were also recognized in 2016 for this. What is the status of the Abenaki Native Americans in Vermont today? To answer this question from Bethany Latimer of Burlington, I visited the leaders of all four of Vermont's state-recognized Abenaki tribes. And I still think about this interview a lot. Thanks for having me. The first person I met was Chief Roger Longtoshian of the Elnu Abenaki. The Elnu are the smallest tribe, about 60 members. Roger lives in southern Vermont, in the town of Jamaica, with his wife Linda and their two dogs. This is my high-tech dog guard. I show up in the late morning, and Roger has a big pot of mushroom tea going on the stove. You ever drink chaga? No. It's a tea made from a, it's a fungus that grows on the white and yellow birch trees that we collect. Um, it's also known as tinder fungus. Linda is also cooking a massive Italian meatloaf, and it's clear she is a culinary force. This house is very tiny, and we've had, I counted, 24 people for dinner in this house. Their house is tiny, and Linda barely has to get up from the kitchen table to get some of the crafts she's working on. Yeah, these are different colors that I did. She shows me dyed porcupine quills that she made from a whole porcupine. It took me like 10 hours to dye it, cut it, pluck it. The barbs are a little dangerous. <laughs> Linda also does twining and works with wampum, which are beads made from clamshells, and Roger makes stuff too. But they don't have much on hand because they've sold it all at powwows and historical events. It's something that I do because it's part of my history, but it's also something that I love to do. The sale of Native crafts was actually one of the main things to change when the Abenaki got state recognition. And of all the tribal leaders I talked to, Roger thought this was the biggest deal. Before we had state recognition, whenever we made something, a, a pipe, a wampum bracelet, whatever, and we sold it, we had to say that we were of Abenaki descent. We couldn't say that we were Abenaki from such and such a tribe. All right? That's a, a federal law. So you could get hit with a $250,000 fine per item. So that's why having that recognition counts. As for more informal recognition from folks in his part of the state, Roger says there isn't much. Down here, there's a lot of people that are aware 
more so of the history, but they don't know that there's actually a tribe here in southern Vermont. In Roger's case, part of that has to do with the fact that he looks pretty white. The average Vermonter, because I'm, I'm so light-skinned, other than if I take off my hat and they see my hairstyle, the shaved head, maybe they'll notice the tattoos, which are traditional tattoos and stuff. Most of them just look at me as being Caucasian. So there are definitely times when Roger has to remind people, we're still here. There's this little short story. Me and Mike Plant, we call him Frog. We had um, gone to a medieval thing, and so we, uh, we had all sorts of Viking shields and swords and spears and all sorts of things like that. After this medieval reenactment thing, they went to the movies in Bellows Falls to see a late showing. And on the way home... State Trooper pulls us over. Most likely figured we'd just come out of the bar, not realizing that, you know, we'd just come out of the movie, so we were as sober as church mice. Roger says the trooper is looking for something to get them on. I had a, a medicine bag hanging off of the mirror. He says, uh, you can't have things hanging down up there. He says, what is that? I says, that's a medicine bag. And he looks at us kind of like, hmm. So he looked at my license, and of course my head's all shaved. Frog now, Frog has more of the stereotypical Indian look. And he goes and he comes in and he looks at us, and he's like, you guys real Indians? We're like, Yeah. And so, you know, we started explaining what it was, and I gather we, we said enough to him that he didn't want to hear anymore, so he's like, okay, okay, I believe you. There might not be a ton of awareness, but Roger says he feels good about the work his and other tribes are doing to build unity and connect with the larger Native community. And he says things are much more open than they used to be, even in the generation just before his. Him and my Uncle Jackie, my cousin Vera's dad, for years and years, man, anytime you'd do anything that was native, you know, yeah, when I was in my late teens, I had my head shaved and my ears pierced and things like that because I was an Indian. God, he was just gave me so much grief. I had to go get my driver's license, things like that and stuff. He's like, oh, they won't give it to you because they'll, they'll know you're an Indian and all this other stuff. So, yeah, I mean, even in his age, he was still worried about it. it I don't think it is so much now. Now he's in his his 70s and you know it's like he's seeing all the stuff that we're doing and and that people ain't giving us a hassle about it but roger says this isn't something he takes for granted things can change it all depends on who's running the world i don't think that we're gonna be completely extinguished again or or you know or have the eugenics come back but you can never tell so never say never We released that episode on November 4th, 2016. Hi, my name is Patrick Warren, and I live in Georgia, Vermont. Next up, we look back at a question about accountability for powerful people. What part of government oversees elected sheriffs in Vermont, and are they as autonomous as they seem? To answer Patrick's question, Emily Corwin dug up some fascinating political history. It was 1976. Bill Russell was 30 years old, and he was two years into his job as legislative counsel for the Vermont legislature, which basically means he was the legislature's lawyer. That's when he got an interesting assignment. I had just started. This was one of the earliest assignments, was the impeachment of the sheriff. Uh, What am I doing trying to impeach the sheriff? (laughs) This would be the first impeachment in Vermont's history. There was no precedent. We had to decide how the legislature would function. But we did have a model, the the one for Nixon. (laughs) The central question at this point is, simply put, 
What did the president know, and when did he know it? I welcome this kind of examination, because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And we had just been treated to an impeachment proceeding on the national level, and everybody was full of pizzazz. Of course, Russell is referring to Watergate, which had been three years earlier. And now, in central Vermont, an elected official, a county sheriff, was accused of abusing his office. Mike Mayo was a sheriff of Washington County, and uh, he was um, accused of misbehaving in bars and restaurants and sort of swaggering around with his power and threatening people. Sheriff Mike Mayo was also accused of planting evidence and falsifying documents. The Vermont Attorney General's office was worried. And um, they uh, must have come to the conclusion that there was no real way to regulate or to oversee the power of the sheriffs. The only way to hold Mayo accountable, the attorney general told Vermont lawmakers, would be to impeach him. I remember Edgar May, a member of the committee, said, what are we doing riding into town to impeach the sheriff? <laughs> this is crazy. Nobody had done this before. So we, we were the first. His job was to assemble the case against Mayo. I was like the prosecuting attorney at the time. Allegedly, Mayo was flaunting his badge and his gun, threatening people in local bars. He was even charged with assaulting someone. And then later, Mayo's deputy said Mayo told him to plant marijuana in the assault victim's car. There were also allegations Mayo falsified documents and instructed his deputies basically not to do their jobs. I was told that they were talking impeachment. This is Mike Mayo. He remembers the day he learned the House Judiciary Committee had voted to impeach him. He was driving back to Montpelier from Waitsfield when his office called. They radioed and told me that I had been impeached and that I was going to go before the Senate. The Senate would hold a trial. They would look at the evidence for each article of impeachment. And if the senators found Mayo guilty, they could remove him from office. But here's the thing. The lawmakers who were involved in this process and Bill Russell, the legislature's attorney, none of them were experienced doing trials. Some of them were lawyers, but they weren't prosecutors. I had worked for Congress for for a while, but uh, I uh, had never been in a courtroom. (laughs) Meanwhile, Mayo was going to be represented by two attorneys from the state's most renowned law firm. I had the two best lawyers in the state of Vermont, and the state had some of the worst ones. The hearings were front-page news from Boston to Burlington. The balcony was crowded with reporters, but the process, especially at first, it was chaos. So you stood up and you faced the Senate, and the 30 senators at that time were considered the judges. And of course, you got the people in the balcony and the press. Rusty Giacomo was one of Mayo's defense lawyers. He remembers being shocked at the omissions of the prosecution. He says they lacked a coherent strategy, they hardly interviewed witnesses, and during his cross-examinations, he says one senator would object, then another would object to that objection. And all of a sudden you have a 10-minute discussion amongst the senators as to whether or not the next question you've asked should be answered or not. It kind of just destroys the whole thing you've been trying to do. There were three articles of impeachment. The first two turned out to be pretty weak. They were based almost entirely on the testimony of a couple of sheriff's deputies, people who had worked for Mayo, whose credibility, Valson Giacomo says, became questionable. I think they got caught up in some things that were legitimate 
gripes or observations to make, but they just went wild with it. And then when they started having to face cross-examination, they started saying, uh-oh, this isn't a little fun, fun and games. The Senate voted to acquit Mayo on the first two articles. It was the third article, which Giacomo thought would be the toughest. You could tell the oh, a tremendous change in their attitudes when it came to the third article. He recalls a bar owner testifying that Mayo had been coming in with his badge and his gun, threatening patrons, even assaulting one. They literally got PO'd at the sheriff. And I think they just shook their heads like, whoa. If Mayo was going to be convicted, this would be his downfall. But Bill Russell, the lawyer for the legislature, remembers even this decision was muddled. It wasn't always clear what what we were deciding when we made a decision as to whether or not we were deciding that the facts were true or whether we were deciding that they would be an impeachable offense. The vote was close on this last article. But even when it came to roughing up patrons at bars, the Senate voted not guilty. So he was acquitted in the Senate, and that in summary is uh, the story of uh, the, the Mayo impeachment. I wasn't worried about it because I didn't do anything wrong. That's Mayo. But even his own defense attorney, Rusty Giacomo, wondered if the acquittal had more to do with a fear that conviction would lead to more impeachments. I think that some of them were looking back on all this and saying to themselves, we don't want to do this in the future. <laughs> solve it in the ballot box or solve it in the criminal law or whatever or lawsuits. This is not why we're senators. The trial took three and a half weeks, weeks when lawmakers could have been making laws. And then ultimately, the state had to pay for Mayo's lawyers, tens of thousands of dollars. As Bill Russell says, it was a learning curve. Now we know better, or we could do it better, if, if that's, maybe it's better not to do it at all. <laughs> Impeachment, he says, should be saved for only the most egregious of offenses. Two years later, Sheriff Mike Mayo was voted out of office. Now, it's not uncommon for us to crack open the history books, or in Emily Corwin's case, the microfilm at the State Archives, to answer your questions. In fact, one question from Beagle Burgo of Heinsberg took us back hundreds of millions of years. What does the geology have to do with the character of Vermont? How do the underlying rocks, soils, topography affect how Vermont is different from other New England states and from New York? This episode focused on the way geology gave way to cultural differences between Vermont and our frenemy, New Hampshire. In this clip, Henry Epp gets on the deep-time natural history beat. Here's Henry. There is something to the idea that the differences between the Granite State and the Green Mountain State go all the way down to the rock below us. Vermont was formed at a different time. The, the land base, the rock base of Vermont was formed at a different time than was New Hampshire. That's Steve Trombulak. He's a professor of environmental studies at Middlebury College, and he's the co-author of the book The Story of Vermont, A Natural and Cultural History. To understand the differences in our bedrock, Steve's going to take us back, like way back. Roughly 400 million years ago or so. 
Steve says that was a very dynamic time period, around 450 million to 320 million years ago. Obviously, I'm painting with a broad brush. You know, we, we throw around numbers of plus or minus 20 million years, which is a very long time. So about 400 million years ago, Vermont and New Hampshire were far apart, separated by an ocean. Vermont was at the edge of a supercontinent. Called Rodinia. Right up to the state's eastern border, about where the Connecticut River now lies. Vermont was coastal property. There wasn't anything to the east of Vermont. Off the coast, there were islands and microcontinents. That were rafting off of proto-Europe and proto-Africa. Those land masses drifted toward what's now Vermont and then slammed into it. And that's what created that eastern section of New England, including New Hampshire. The next key difference between the bedrock and then the mountains in Vermont and New Hampshire is the way in which they formed. To understand that, we need to remember some basic geology. So when we think about if you go back to earth science that you took in ninth grade or even in college. And you remember the layers of the rock, so crust, mantle, core. That's Lori Grigg. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at Norwich University. Well, the crust is what we call the bedrock, and that's that outer rigid layer. So we're on the continental crust. So the crust, when the land masses that now make up Vermont and New Hampshire collided, like we heard about from Steve Trombulak, Vermont was higher in the crust than New Hampshire. And as a result, the rocks in Vermont have undergone less metamorphism because they were higher in the crust, which is not as hot and not as much pressure as rocks in New Hampshire, which were lower in the crust and kind of more in the center of this continental collision that was occurring. Okay, this is where it gets a bit confusing. Metamorphism means change. And even though Vermont rocks underwent less change, a lot of the bedrock is still referred to as metamorphic rock, whereas a lot of the bedrock in New Hampshire is igneous rock. Lori Grigg has a helpful way of explaining the difference. She calls it the folds versus the blobs. The folds versus the blobs. So the metamorphic rocks that are fairly well beat up in Vermont have been folded. So you can think of if you take a piece of paper and you push it from either side, then it's going to fold into multiple ridges up and down. So essentially, that's what happened. When the ancient islands slammed into what's now Vermont, the land folded up into mountains. All of that slamming into North America. Again, Steve Trombulak. Over a relatively short period of time led to the creation of the Green Mountains and the Taconic Mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, all the way down as far as Alabama. All of that is a result of the ancient collisions. That slamming, then folding up, created the Green Mountains and the long north-south valleys and rivers in Vermont. The Mad River, the Stevens Branch of the Winooski, the Kingsbury Branch, right, Waterbury. Those drainages are following these north-south trending valleys that have been produced by these long linear lines of rock types in Vermont. Meanwhile, in New Hampshire and parts of Vermont's Northeast Kingdom, where the rock was lower in the continental crust, Lori Grigg says there was something bubbling under the surface. In New Hampshire, instead, we've got these lots, many, many big, giant blobs of granite, which is a different kind of rock. It's not a metamorphic rock. 
It's an igneous rock, which means it formed from a magma. Magma is molten rock, and in this case, big blobs of it intruded into the crust and melted part of it, and then everything cooled, forming a different kind of mountains. We don't really see these long linear valleys that are kind of the length of the state in New Hampshire because of the big massifs, the White Mountain Massif and other ones. And so the whole weathering pattern and pattern of the topography is really different. From sweeping natural history, we'll transition to one last clip from our archive about grocery shopping. I'm Hannah Lindner Finley. I live in Westminster, West Vermont. And I'm wondering, what is it like to be a migrant worker in Vermont? In this excerpt, I'm with a group of Jamaican men who work at Harlow Farm in Westminster. They have seasonal H-2A visas for foreign workers. It's Friday night, and they've just gotten paid, and they pile into a mini school bus to head into Bellows Falls and buy food. One of the men I've met, Gerald Berry, says it's a school bus that everyone recognizes. One, because it's full of Jamaicans, and two, because the letters S and H have been carefully removed from the word school. The cool bus. It was cool, but we just take off that and mark the cool bus. Because, you know, cool run-ins, that, right, so it's just the cool bus. Everybody loves it. <laughs> yeah. I hitch a ride on the cool bus one Friday as Gerald and about 10 other guys make the rounds to stock up for the week. And when I say rounds, I mean rounds. We stop at eight stores. First is Rite Aid. Gerald hops out all by himself, and we leave him there and drive up the road to the second store, a local market called Lee Size. Inside, the men all head for the meat section. They clear out a shelf of chicken legs, 10-pound bags for 59 cents a pound. And you pay. <laughs> I fall into step with a guy named Dane, who also orders five pounds of pork butt. Hello, five pounds. These are provisions for him and his coworker Raymond to cook together during the week. While the butcher is weighing the meat, Gerald shows up in the store. Did he walk here? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> Dane figures he hitched a ride here. There are so many people in town who know him. That guy's been knowing in Vermont, you know. The meat costs twenty-two dollars and forty-eight cents. Dane pays in cash. He and the others load their bags into the cool bus, and then it's on to the third store, across the Connecticut River in Walpole, New Hampshire, the discount food warehouse. In here, everyone makes a beeline for the corned beef. They clear out that shelf, too. Then Dane walks the aisles slowly, picking stuff up, looking at the price, putting it down. He eventually gets some fruit juice, white flour, dry beans, and Lipton extra noodle soup, among other things. $14.84. Across the street is Mr. G's Liquidation Center, the fourth store. Dane picks up some Lipton tea and more fruit juice. At almost every store, Dane separates his purchases into two payments. Stuff for him and stuff for his family back home. Fifth is State Line Grocery, and sixth is the Family Dollar. Ketchup, instant coffee creamer, soap, peppermints. At this point, Dane is paying in small bills and change. I just need one more penny. Thank you. As we pull away in the cool bus, everyone waves goodbye to a kid in the parking lot. Finally, we stop at a shopping center. I lose track of Dane in the Ocean State job lot, and head into Shaw's with Gerald. 
He's buying dried beans, instant soup, and a 12-pack of Budweiser. When he's checking out, one of the cashiers recognizes him. What's up? I'm doing all right. Bradley Talent has worked at Harlow Farm in the summer, like a lot of high schoolers in the area. He's clearly very excited to see Gerald. I'll see you around, my all friend. Right. Yeah, man. All right. Take care, man. You too. <laughs> at this point, we've been shopping for about two hours, and the cool bus is packed with groceries. Not my box. But no one seems in a rush to get back. A few guys light up cigarettes in the parking lot, while others just sit in the bus and chat. It's a long shopping day. I can tell. Yeah, yeah. Junior, who's been working at Harlow Farm as long as Gerald has, tells me that this is actually a short shopping trip. If you should be like with us next week in Claremont, then it will be a longer shopping day. Even longer than this? Yeah. There's a Walmart in Claremont, which is also across the river in New Hampshire. Sometimes the men buy dresses for their wives there. All told, Junior says the trip can take four or five hours. So actually, when we make the money here, we leave most of it here. (laughs) Eventually, the men will drive home and park the cool bus behind the dock. They'll each make a couple trips up the wooden steps to their apartment, unloading their food. Then dinner, maybe a little TV, and up again in the morning for work. Things have changed at Harlow Farm in the years that Junior and Gerald and the others have been here. The operation has gotten bigger, and Paul Harlow says that because the Jamaican crew keeps everything running so well, he can actually hire more local workers. Junior says he's changed too. It's good to learn what we learn here because it's helped you to be a changed person when you're at home. How so? Because um, sometimes back then you look at people by the jobs they do. But now because we are working here and we are working in the dirt, even sometimes back home you see the guys in the garbage truck, you know, like, oh, gross. No, nothing like that. That is all disappear from us. So you don't judge people anymore? No, 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 no. We just like upset people for the jobs they do. We respect their jobs. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing. I learn a lot here. Thanks so much for listening to our show. If you want to hear the full version of any of the episodes we've sampled here, head to our website, bravelittlestate.org. And be sure to check out our new interactive map of our episode archive made by my colleague, Elodie Reed. And of course, you can submit a question about Vermont or vote on the one you want us to tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund and from VPR Sustaining Members. You can become one of those at bravelittlestate.org donate. Our editor is Lynn McRae, and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Povington Bear, and Liam Elder Connors. The stories you heard today were reported by Peter Hirschfeld, Liam Elder Connors, Rebecca Sinanis, Emily Corwin, Henry Epp, and me, with engineering support from Chris Albertine. Special thanks to Noah Cutter. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back next month to answer more of your questions about mysterious Vermont road names. This is it. This, it just stops. Oh. Oh, so that's the farmhouse. This is beautiful. (laughs) 
Until then, you know what to do. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.